This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, February 24th. I'm Mary Margaret Olihan. And I'm Doug Blair. Immigration is taking the spotlight at the Supreme Court. Yesterday, Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich argued in favor of former President Trump's public charge rule. That rule would prevent immigrants from gaining citizenship. They use too many social services, like food stamps or Medicaid. He joins the show to discuss how those arguments went and what this rule means for our immigration system. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich, let's hit our top stories of the day. The United States warned that Russia's aggression towards Ukraine could result in a massive refugee crisis, as well as threaten international security. On Thursday, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield cautioned a group of delegates gathered at a U.N. General Assembly meeting that millions of refugees could flee Ukraine during a Russian invasion. Thomas-Greenfield said, if Russia continues down this path, it could, according to our estimates, create a new refugee crisis, one of the largest facing the world today, with as many as 5 million more people displaced by Russia's war of choice and putting pressure on Ukraine's neighbors. Ukrainian officials also sounded the alarm over Russia's aggressive stance. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called for a state of emergency across the country starting midnight on Thursday. Additionally, during a press conference in Washington, D.C., Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said Ukraine would defend itself against Russian incursions. Kuleba said, I would like to assure you that we would be happy if we never have to pick up those weapons and use them on the battlefield. We want peace. But if Russia attacks, we have to be equipped to fight back. Kuleba added that he cannot be fully satisfied until the last Russian soldier withdraws from Ukrainian territory. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has announced that on February 28th, the city will mostly no longer mandate masking or require proof of vaccination for restaurants and other indoor businesses. Masks will still be mandated in the Chicago public schools, however. This decision is in alignment with the state's plan to lift the statewide indoor mask mandate on the same day, Lightfoot said in a tweet, noting that masks will still be required in congregate spaces. The Chicago mayor added that she will not hesitate to enforce more mandates in the future, though she said that her goal is not to shut down our economy again. Lightfoot and Chicago Public Schools CEO Pedro Martinez said that they plan to stick by their agreement with the Chicago Teachers Union mandating masks in schools until August. We have made great progress in recent weeks against this virus, and we do not want to jeopardize that progress by moving too quickly, the school district said in a statement Tuesday, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. We look forward to the day when we can be mask optional at CPS, but we still need to get more students vaccinated across our district, and we still need to work with our public health and labor partners on the best way to preserve a safe in-person learning environment for all. Viewership ratings for the 2022 Beijing Olympics show it was the lowest viewed games in the event's televised history. The data released on Monday revealed that the 2022 games had an average total audience of 11.4 million viewers. That's a more than 40% drop since the last Winter Games. Those would be the 2018 Winter Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea, which had a 19.8 million average. Per NPR, some experts blame the low numbers on a large time difference between the U.S. and China, as well as pushback to China's human rights abuses. 
The Winter Olympics also generally attracts less interest than the Summer Olympics does. Though the Winter Olympics failed to attract a large television audience, the 2022 Games were the most streamed Winter Games ever. Per NPR, 4.3 billion minutes of events were streamed digitally over 18 days. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. At the Heritage Foundation, we believe voting is a sacred duty. It's how people express what course they want our nation to take. Given the importance of the ballot box, it's necessary to have a transparent and fraud-free system that can be trusted. This is why Heritage created the Election Integrity Scorecard. The scorecard compares the laws and regulations for elections state to state and ranks them on their security and transparency. Check out the Election Integrity Scorecard at heritage.org slash election scorecard. My guest today is Mark Brnovich, Attorney General for Arizona. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be back here. This is such a great place. A lot of fond memories. Well, it's always wonderful to welcome some people home. Uh, Just hours ago, you argued in front of the Supreme Court on President Trump's public charge ruling, which for those of us who maybe aren't aware of, it's a ruling that prevented immigrants from gaining citizenship if they were too reliant on social services such as food stamps or Medicaid. So what is at stake in this case? Well, First, once again, thank you for having me. And I, I think it's important if I if I can, you know, indulge me. Uh, I, look, I'm a first generation American. Um, my parents lived through World War II. They lived through communism. And when I was walking into the court today, I mean, it's not lost on me that this is like I remember going there as a high school kid and like being in awe, like the statue of John Marshall and you're seeing all the stuff. And literally, you could have a first-generation American suing the president of the United States and mm. arguing against his Department of Justice in, fr- in front of the Supreme Court, I think, speaks volumes about what an amazing country this is. And mm. it's an amazing country because of the rule of law. So fundamentally, we are a nation of immigrants. I understand that. Um, we are the, the land of the free. I understand that as well. But we are not the land of the welfare state. And mm. what we don't want to do and what the public charge rule was designed to do, I mean, it's literally a statute that's been around for 100 years, is basically we don't want people coming to the United States to become dependent on government, to become wards of the state. And so the Trump administration had promulgated a rule that basically said if you are on government benefits or welfare for more than one year of your first three years here, that you were then not eligible or you know, the path for legal status. And the, the common sense rule is designed that, look, we want to make sure that people that have paid into the system and that people that are citizens here, when there's an emergency, a crisis, or they're in need, that they're the ones getting those benefits, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the Biden administration, um, there, were, there was multiple lawsuits on this. The Trump administration was defending it. And the U.S. Supreme Court literally had accepted certiorari on a case. And the Biden administration, and frankly, really unprecedented move, um, withdrew their defense of the public charge rule. And then they allowed a decision from the Northern District of Illinois that essentially said the rule is unconstitutional, stand, and then they used that as a basis to rescind the rule. Mm. So it was really sneaky and tricky. And, you know, I, I remind folks that, you know, it's the it's the take care clause in the Constitution, not the surrender to the left clause, which is what the Biden administration essentially did. So this was an important case because if the Biden administration will not do their job, then states like Arizona are going to have to come, step up. And, de- and defend the rule of law. And that's what we were trying to do today. So that's some great background. And I really appreciate you giving us that info because some of this seems very complicated. Yeah. 
now that we have that background, would you be able to place us in the courtroom? What happened? What were the justices thinking? What did it seem like the atmosphere of the court was? Well, I, I will tell you, and I, in fact, I think I made reference to saying in the courtroom that I learned a long time ago not to predict what a judge is going to do, especially a federal judge, you know, with lifetime appointment. I mean, for full disclosure purposes, I'm, I'm actually married to a federal judge. She was a state judge and then President Trump appointed her to the federal bench. And, you know, I can't even predict what my wife's going to do all the time. So, I'm, I'm, you know, you never know what's going to happen with the federal judge. And a lot of times the justices will ask questions because they may even have their mind made up, but they're trying to influence, you know, their colleagues as well or maybe mm. influence the way the opinion takes shape. But, you know, clearly the justices understood, especially when they were asking the Biden administration, their, their lawyers questions about like, you know, for precedent, when has this happened before? And frankly, it hasn't. And that's what we kept. I kept coming back to that. This is unprecedented. This is something that we haven't seen before. You literally had the Biden administration colluding mm. with the plaintiffs in order to undermine a duly enacted rule. And it, it's, it's a dangerous precedent because, like I said, if you allow them to do this, then you could have – you know, other instances where the administration will essentially engage in strategic surrender to advance their policy goals. And once again, we talked about this just a second ago, the rule of law has to mean something. Mm -hmm. And that means if the Biden administration doesn't like the public charge rule, then they have to go through the notice and comment and um, go through the process that the statute requires. They can't just unilaterally pick and choose which laws are going to apply to them. And when they don't like the law, essentially a, a sue and surrender or sue and settle strategy where they get together with the other side and you know do something that they think is really cute and tricky. It sounds like the crux of your argument is that part of the process was done wrong. Maybe yes. that if the, the Biden administration wanted to do something and change this law, they have the capacity to do that. It's just not through the way they're doing it. Is that what your argument was? Yeah, that, that's a big part of it. And one of the things I pointed out, I even said this, like, it's not just about what the Biden administration did here. If you allow them to get away with this, you've essentially then provided a roadmap for future administrations. We know when there's a change in administrations, there's a change in policy. And we're not saying that. The Solicitor General can even decide to not take a position. You know, we're not trying to micromanage the federal government's litigation. But if they aren't going to do their job, one of the things the Biden administration did was oppose states like Arizona and other states that wanted to intervene. They opposed us. They stopped us from defending the law. So, you know, my thing is, if you're Joe Biden and you don't want to defend the law, then get the heck out of the way mm -hmm. and let Arizona come in and do the job that you're supposed to be doing, right? And, and in fact, I'm, one of the points I made is that this very Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is said the, the states can't enforce immigration law, right? You know, they said the feds preempt us. That's where the president's kind of at his apex of power. So if the if the president is not going to do his job, then we should be able to at least step in and say and defend the law as it is um, if he's not going to do his job. If that's your argument, what was the argument of the opposite side? How did they justify their position? Well, look, a lot of what they were arguing was, look, there's a change in administration and administrations can change policies and, you know, Kind of essentially that, you know, because these cases have been dismissed, there's nothing really Arizona can do at this time, you know. But our point was is that they had strategically and sneakily, if that's a word, sneakily, they had uh, withdrawn the rule, surrendered in these cases, withdrew their cert petition from the U.S. Supreme Court, all these unprecedented things. And they literally did it in a way that was so coordinated that they did, you know, they did all this on March 9th and then bam, they end up, you know, revoking the rule mm. and, and saying that relying on this Northern District of Illinois decision. And then they try to say, oh, well, no one can do anything now because all these cases are settled now. And it's it was really, you know, underhanded and sneaky. And so, you know, part of our argument was you have to let us into these cases mm. so we can defend the public charge rule when the Biden administration won't. And the justices and even the Biden administration recognized, you know, we kind of kept coming back to even the liberal justices that 
this is really unprecedented. In fact, I can't remember one of the justices today alluded to the fact that this was kind of like a law school problem almost, mm. you know. And, uh, you know, there's a whole chicken and egg thing. Like, well, if you engage in strategic surrender and you won't defend the law, well, can the states come in and defend it? And more importantly, is there, is there still a case or controversy? Is it moot? And so, you know, there's all these these type of uh, legal issues going on. And, and the bottom line is, is that you can't let the Biden administration get away with this. And I, and I try to keep emphasizing that, you know, it may be the Biden administration now, but it could be another future administration mm-hmm. that tries to do something like this. And the rule of law, once again, has to mean something. And the Biden administration tried to almost make it seem like, well, because we disagreed with them on policy, mm-hmm. you know, that's why we were doing this. And like I said, I understand that when there's a change in administration, there can be a change in policy. But the Administrative Procedures Act, whether you like it or not, provides a process for withdrawing a rule. And the Biden administration didn't follow it, period. It sounds like the implications for this case kind of umbrella out of immigration. Immigration yeah. is the problem in this particular yes. case, but there are wide-reaching consequences for other policy areas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, it's important. And one of the arguments that, you know, frankly, I made and I emphasized is that the states have to have the ability to, to intervene when the federal government won't do its job. And just so you know, some of my thinking on this, there, there was a side of me that's like, well, you know, do we want to make it more likely that states intervene? And, you know, but does this set a precedent for, you know, mm. lefty states like California, New York now to do involvement litigation? And honestly, I thought to myself, well, you know what? <laughs> the courts are going to let California, New York do that anyway. Even like in this case, they find an excuse for San Francisco to sue to you know, over a federal statute and, or in Illinois get a nationwide injunction out of Cook County. So it's like, you know, the left already does this. They gain mm. the system. So – you know, we as, as attorneys general, I need to use every tool in my toolbox and I, I want to make sure we're on offense. And that means that we have to have the ability to go in and, and defend a federal law and the federal government won't do it. And I remind folks all the time what Ronald Reagan said, the federal government didn't create the states. The states created the federal government. Mm. And part of federalism means the states have to have that ability to protect their interests when the federal government won't. One of the things that this brings to mind is this concept of sanctuary cities where the immigration law sort of is preempted by the states in terms of enforcing. How does that play into this debate? Yeah, you know, that that wasn't directly, uh, you know, a part of this issue. And in Arizona, actually, I think it was two years ago that city Tucson, which is a progressive left-leaning city, they even rejected sanctuary cities. So I think most people now understand that if you – decriminalize something like the Biden administration is doing. It's mm-hmm. one of our lawsuits about the public charge rule. If you incentivize it, this is mm-hmm. part of dealing with um, interim guidance. I'm sorry. I, I might say interim guidance, not sure, public sure. charge. But the p- public charge is the incentivization, we call it. And so when you do that, when you decriminalize something, you incentivize something, you get more of it. Mm-hmm. And people's hearts maybe are in the right places, but they have to understand it's not fair to anyone. And what they what the Biden administration has done is – this is a man-made crisis. You know, they want to talk, the lefties want to talk about, the progressive left about climate change or whatever, but make no mistake about it. This is the real man-made crisis and disaster. Our system's getting overwhelmed. I know as a prosecutor, we're seeing record amount of fentanyl, methamphetamine. We're seeing the prices drop, and it's because the cartels have seized control of the border. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think anybody, any reasonable person, whether they're a Democrat, Republican, left or right, understands that you can't have a system that gets overwhelmed and we basically cede control of our border to the cartels. You represent Arizona, which is one state out of 50. But how has this public charge rule at the federal level affected your state? Well, we know, and this was this in part of our pleadings today, is that 
that more than a billion dollars just just in financial costs, right, mm-hmm. of, of people receiving benefits. Now, you know, the Biden administration once again tried to like minimize saying, oh, it doesn't impact a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, only here in Washington, D.C., when you start throwing around numbers like billions, do they think that's insignificant? But, you know, I'll tell you, as a public school kid and as Arizona taxpayer, we shouldn't have one dime go to, to subsidize people that, quite frankly, don't have lawful or legal status. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. And, you know, once again, we are a nation of immigrants, but we want to make sure those safety nets are there to protect and support people that have paid into the system and, you know, basically have folks that want to come here that want to be self-sufficient, that don't want to become reliant and dependent on, on the government. And so, you know, it, it, these these are obviously really, really important de- debates. And um, I just think that a lot of folks, hardworking, middle-class taxpayers in our country, not just in Arizona, all over, understand what's fair is what's fair. And it's not fair for, you know, someone to come in and basically cut in line and then get government benefits. Mm. And I'll tell you, I, I don't do polling. I never have. And, you know, I never run for office before I was AG. And, um, you know, but my, I, I talked to my mom and her friends from church. And, you know, so my mom was born in a foreign country. Her friends were born in Eastern Europe and Poland, you know, and Romania, Hungary, Yugoslavia. And they, when I hear them talking about they don't like what's going on, they had to work two and three jobs and no one gave them anything. No one gave them a, you know, the most challenging question immigrants are getting now is, you know, they want, you know, twin or a single bed, you know, in, in their hotel room that's being paid by taxpayers and they get free flights. And and fundamentally, even immigrants understand this is not fair. It's not fair. The system is not designed this way and the system is, is getting overwhelmed. And the reason why so many people want to come here, once again, is because of the rule of law. And so... I think people understand that, not just in Arizona. And then and then you throw the overlay of what's going on, you know, with the cartels and, you know, violence and, and drug prices falling and the amount of meth, uh, meth and fentanyl coming in. I mean, people are dying. Mm. People are dying in the United States as a result of the Biden administration policy. So I think there's um, there's not a lot of sympathy for people that aren't doing it the right way. While this rule makes its way through the courts, what is the reality on the ground? Well, the system, I mean, look, there, there's a lot of us that used to say that we thought the Biden administration wanted to abolish ICE, but now we're seeing firsthand that essentially they're abolishing the whole southern border. Mm. I mean, this is the whole far left, progressive, you know, idea, you know, whoever's talking to Joe Biden's earpiece or whatever telling him is that they essentially, you know, want to undermine our, our sovereignty and it's undermining our national security. And I think this... You know, when you, you have to look at this in a broader context, like when we think of like what they're doing with the 1619 Project and critical mm. race theory, undermining, you know, our institutions, um, you know, houses of worship, the family, undermining law enforcement. I think this is all part of a systematic effort by the far left, progressive left to, to create this neo-Marxist paradise. Mm. And they have to get the system has to be overwhelmed and they have to get middle class, you know, public school kids to hate their country. And that's what they're trying to do. And I think this is part of that that system. It's part of, you know, one of the prongs of the progressive left with trying to do to, to fundamentally shape and alter this country so they can bring about their version of a Marxist paradise. Let's say the justices rule in your favor. We get what we want here. And what happens next? What are the implications if the justices rule in your favor? Well, depending on how broad or how narrow the decision is, I can just assure everyone that I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep going on offense. I'm going to keep doing everything I can to try to bring some sanity, to try to bring some order into what's going on at our southern border. Because frankly, it's overwhelming the system. It's affecting, it's going to affect every taxpayer. And 
you know, we saw just last year what more than what hundred thousand people died of fentanyl, you know, opioid related deaths. I mean, that's almost twice as many people that died in the Vietnam War. I mean, this is a war going on. Um, you know, I recently issued a, an opinion, first AG in the country, first ever to call what's going on an invasion. And I think mm. if people read that well-reasoned opinion, they will understand that what is going on here with the cartels and the gangs is that, you know, there's a unconventional war going on and we need to recognize that. Absolutely. I want to actually mention that phrasing. Um, on February 7th, you released a legal brief like you were you were saying that was describing this as an invasion. What led you to use that word specifically? Well, the Constitution, you know, talks about this. And, you know, frankly, one of the problems I have with the Biden administration is they won't even recognize the problem they created our southern border. I have invited, you know, Kamala Harris was a um, attorney general. I mean, she was one of my colleagues not that long ago. Um, you know, Secretary Mayorkas, um, we've invited them to sit down and talk to us to get a firsthand look at what's going on in the border, you know. But, you know, the, you know how the, the lefty elites are, you know, the California elites, they, they fly over Arizona and the rest of our country and they, they then they come to D.C. and they think they can solve all the problems. They, but they don't even recognize the problems we have. And so language, I think, matters. Mm. And so part of it, it's, it's almost like the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. And so if the Biden administration won't call it what it is, somebody has to. And that's that's part of the reason why, you know, we use that. And I understand that language, you know, some people are offended by it. Some people can, you know, think it's inflammatory. But, you know, it goes back to these first principles. What does the Constitution say? And, you know, we did an analysis and we say that based on all these facts, based on the language of the Constitution, this qualifies. And therefore, it's up to the governor our governor, other governors, to then use all the resources available that they have in order to try to, you know, stem the tide and, you know, protect our Arizona citizens. How does the Constitution define invasion? Is that a word that appears in the Constitution with a legal definition? Yeah, or? if you look in, uh, if you look at, um, in fact, I brought my, actually, I didn't bring it. I, I happen to snag one from your Heritage lobby. Foundation uh, Constitution. Nice plug there, product placement, right? <laughs> See, that's why I know you know I'm a good lawyer when I can uh, oh my gosh, I might have the Constitution might come in handy here. <laughs> no, we know that um, you know, there, there's language in Article Four, Section Four, and then we know in Article One, Section Ten, you know, there's language in here that um really like sets forth the parameters. And so, as I said, I think that um uh you know, words have meaning. And mm. one of the things that we've also talked about in just not even the context of invasion, you know, that uh, you know, the president has an obligation to, you know, take charge and make sure the laws are executed, which I believe President Biden's failing to do. But, you know, I've also said that Secretary Mayorkas is probably the most incompetent mm. of President Biden's cabinet officials. That says a lot, right? And so I don't know why there's not more people calling for his impeachment. Mm. I mean, if he's not going to do his job, I actually had previously called for him to be replaced. Mm. They're not going to do that. But I mean, at some point, you know, he needs, they need to use the impeachment process in the Constitution and move forward on that. And so, you know, it is a strange time because I, I sometimes I don't know, I take a step back and I think, well, what is the Biden administration up to? What's the progressive left up to? You know, you asked it. Sometimes people ask me and I can, you know, assume, you know, or, or think, you know, based on my, you know, experience and, you know, what they're doing, what I think they're doing. But, it really is crazy. And, and I, I think that a big part of this is not only an overwhelming system, but they want to consolidate as much power as the progressive left does because they understand that once you take that power from the people, you take it away from the states, it's really, really difficult to get it back. And even with um, as government increases in size and scope and you know provides more outlays, people become you know more dependent. 
you know, that's why nothing ever changes in this town. Government, the federal government just grows bigger and bigger and bigger because there's not enough folks willing to st- stand up and say no. Where in this Constitution does Congress have the power to do that? You know, where, where does an Article One, you know, the enumerated powers, where does it say they can do that? And, and then, you know, the notion that, well, wait a minute, is this something that not only the federal government is about to do, but should they be doing? You know, mm-hmm. and I'm a big believer that – I'm a big believer in federalism, that when government is uh, left at the state level or more localized, it's more responsive and more efficient. And, you know, why should Arizona taxpayers be funding, subsidizing, you know, bridges to nowhere or bike paths in Vermont? One final question for you. If this is something that is better re- fought at the state level, should more states be involved in this fight and how should they be engaged in it? On immigration? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, it's kind of a big believer in federalism just in the principles of limited government and enumerated powers. But as to immigration, this is this is part of the big problem is the, the U.S. Supreme Court and actually in Arizona case, the Arizona case – they said that the states can't use or can't enforce immigration laws. And so the president, when it comes to immigration, national security, foreign policy, foreign trade, that's where the president, he or she is the apex of their power. And so if the, if the courts aren't going to let us do, so, do it, enforce it, then we have to use other tools in our toolboxes. And even going back to the invasion opinion, part of that is, is that, well, let's use our the criminal enforcement. We're not enforcing immigration law, but we're allowed as a state to enforce criminal laws, right? And so – I think that it's sad that it's come to this time and place where states are having to do this kind of stuff. I mean, the state of Texas shouldn't be having to build a wall. That's the federal government's responsibility. Literally, we have a lawsuit trying to sue the Biden administration or sue the Biden administration over failure to build a wall. Mm. The money's there. Literally, we are paying people not to build a wall now. This is how crazy it is. Mm. So it's not fair. It's not right that states like Arizona and Texas are having to do this. But my goodness, it's you know, if I don't step up and do something, then who will? I mean, and that, that's these are strange and difficult times, and I think they call for you know bold leadership, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm trying to do. Look, I, I tell people all the time, you may not agree with me all the time, but you know where I stand, you know where my principles are, and they're back to those first principles, and I believe in, you know, the, the primacy of the individual. I believe in limited government. I believe in the, the promises of the Declaration of Independence, that, that our rights are given to us by a creator, not by the government. Mm. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And so I don't want to be, like, on the front line and suing the president in court because he's failing to, you know, secure our border, but I'm going to do it if no one else will. That was Attorney General Mark Burnovich, who represents the state of Arizona. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. The Daily Signal will be at the Conservative Political Action Conference for the next few days, so stay tuned for exciting interviews with the conservative movement's best and brightest. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.